You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Gary Chapman released a book that would be on the New York Times bestseller list for years, and it was called The Five Love Languages. The premise of the book is that there are five general ways in which people express and receive love, which he calls five love languages. And according to Chapman, these five love languages are acts of service, gift-giving, physical touch, quality time, and words of affirmation. And the central idea that Chapman tries to get across in his book is that we like to think that we can simply love our spouse in our own way. But often, our attempts at showing our love to our spouse fail to communicate love because that is not the language through which they receive love. You're trying to speak to them outside of their love language. For example, your love language might be physical touch. And so you give hugs to your spouse and you try to hold their hand, but it doesn't quite get through to them because their love language is acts of service. In other words, what you need to do if you want to communicate your love to them is you need to wash some dishes. And you need to take out some garbage. And you need to fold some laundry. Amen. Amen. I got some witnesses out there. If you're going to truly love your spouse, you can't just do whatever you want in your expression of your love. Rather, you must be attuned to the heart of your spouse so that you can express your love through their love language. This framework maps on to our relationship to God. Many people say that they love the Lord or that they want to love the Lord. And we like to think that we can simply love God in our own way. But often our attempts at expressing our love fail to communicate love to God because it's not the language by which the Lord receives love. For example... In our current moment, many people are opting for a churchless Christianity, a novel, individualist way of loving God that detaches them from the kind of community to which God has called his people. But this doesn't register as love to the Lord because his love language is faithful obedience. In other words, as much as you would like to express your love to God in your own unique way that you think is right and good. Your Lord wants you to express your love to him in the way that he wants to be loved. No matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how sincere your feelings, if you're going to truly love the Lord, you can't just do whatever you want and call it love. Rather, You must be attuned to the heart of God through the word of God so that you can express your love to God through his love language, how he wants to be loved. In our text for today, we come to the second commandment. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And we're going to approach this text through two points where we see the heart of the command and the command of the heart. The heart of the command and the command of the heart. So let's look at our first point where we see the heart of the command. The key text in all of the Bible for understanding what the second commandment is all about is Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf incident. And this is a, many, this is a familiar text for many Christians. And our own familiarity with this story might actually cause us to miss some of the deeper structure of what we have in this text. You know how familiarity can often lead to premature conclusions that are more surface level and generic. But in this text, there is some rich theological detail that helps us to understand that there's more going on in this text than simple rebellion. There's more here. And to be honest, most of us American Christians, when we come to the second commandment, we sort of breathe a sigh of relief. And we think, well, at least I'm not breaking that commandment because I'm not out here carving any images for use in worship. But at the heart of the second commandment, I want you to hear this. At the heart of the second commandment is a question. Who has the right to decide how God is to be worshipped? Who has the right to decide how God is to be worshipped? Take a look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads like this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now listen, I want you to remember something that's really important in this text. Moses is the people's only point of contact with the Lord. He's their only point of contact. He is the Lord's representative to the people, and he's the people's representative to the Lord. And now Moses is taking a long time in returning from his meeting with the Lord. And in light of this detail, Old Testament scholar Pete N. suggests that this episode is not just an act of godless rebellion. It's also a moment of panic in which the people fear that they have lost their only point of contact with the Lord. And so their unbelief turns to panic. And panic then spirals out of control into anger and frustration. Think of it like this. Think of it like this. It's like a, a child who's waiting at school for their parent to pick them up. And the parent is an hour late. And they're afraid. Like, my, my, my mom and dad's not coming. And it turns to panic. But then pretty soon, when you show up, it turns to anger. And they let all their anger and frustration out on you. That's something, I think, closer to what's happening in this text, according to Old Testament scholar Pete Enns. So how does Israel respond? And how do the details shed better light on the significance of this text? This is a key clarification 
that must be made in this passage. Israel doesn't respond to the absence of Moses by turning to Yahweh, turning away from Yahweh to other gods. That's important for you to understand. What's happening in this text is not a breaking of the first commandment. It's a breaking of the second commandment. What happens here in the making of the golden calf is not them turning away from Yahweh to another god. They respond by creating their own bastardized form of worship to establish a new point of contact with the Lord. Again, this comes through in the details. And you have to be a student of the Bible in order to pick up on a lot of the nuances in the scriptures. Let's look at all the details in this text that lead us to this conclusion. In verses 2 through 3, we get references to gold that Aaron collects from the people for the golden calf. And this reference to the collection of gold for the golden calf, you know what it, it echoes? It echoes back to all the references to gold in the building of the tabernacle. And it references the free will offering of the people in which they brought their gold for the building of the tabernacle. In other words, this golden calf was meant to be a replacement for the tabernacle, a new point of contact. The golden calf was not meant to be a replacement for Yahweh. It was not considered a god in itself. That's not how idols worked in the ancient Near East. Rather, people in this culture believed that the spirit of that god resided within the idol itself, allowing them to harness and control the power of that god. It was a sort of talisman. So the golden calf was thought to be a point of contact with Yahweh and a means of harnessing and controlling his power. Move to verse 4. When Aaron calls out, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? He is directly attempting to mimic the prologue to the Ten Commandments. The people think that the spirit of Yahweh has taken up residence in the golden calf. And the Israelites are saying that Yahweh's presence is now associated with that golden calf. And now that they're in his presence, they are turning their attention to recognize him in the golden calf. The Israelites are saying that Yahweh's presence is now associated with this piece of gold and this new set of religious practices the gesture at the pattern of worship that the Lord had already laid down. They gesture at it. They are not breaking the first commandment here, which establishes the true God. They're specifically breaking the second commandment, which establishes true worship. From this point, their bastardized, unauthorized worship continues. Verse 5. Aaron builds an altar, a parallel to the altar in the tabernacle, and he announces that there will be a festival to the Lord the next day, which echoes the refrain that happens all through the book of Exodus when the Lord says to Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can hold a festival to me. It also echoes the Passover 
and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is their new replacement for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 6 is reminiscent of the covenant meal that Yahweh had with Israel in chapter 24. If you look at Exodus chapter 24, verses 4 through 5, Moses, just like we have in chapter 32, verse 6, Moses rises early and sacrifices burnt and fellowship offerings. This festival in chapter 32 is a perversion of the true celebration of chapter 24. Essentially, the Israelites suppose that they can do communion any old way they want. In Exodus 24, the leaders of Israel receive a brief glimpse of God. And now the Israelites who think they're in Yahweh's presence by virtue of the golden calf partake of a covenant meal, a covenant meal of their own design, which soon descends into deeper depravity of a sexual nature. And the kicker comes in verse 17. After Moses intercedes for Israel, after, after Moses comes down from the mountain, he's up there getting the law, the Decalogue, written on stone tablets with the very finger of God, which is another reason why you can't disregard the Ten Commandments. They're written with the very finger of God. After Moses comes down, down the mountain, he comes down with his assistant Joshua. And as they're walking down the mountain, there's a sound that they begin to hear. And Joshua says to Moses, he says, I hear the sound of war in the camp. And Moses, because he already knows what's going on, he says, it's not the sound of war that I hear. It's the sound of singing. It's the sound of singing. This, you might think, is like a raucous drinking party, like Israel is doing this like wild drinking party. It's not that. It's not a Bacchanalian feast. What it is, is it's their own unauthorized recapitulation of Exodus 15. You remember after the Lord closed the sea back over the Egyptian army? What did the people do on the other side of the sea? They sang and they danced and they worshiped the Lord for his great salvation, for his victory. And now they are holding their own unauthorized singing session to the golden calf. Old Testament scholar Pete Enns says this, and I quote, The Israelites are in effect turning the Exodus experience on its head. They are going back to their story of redemption, and they are recasting everything. Now, don't you find it interesting that the one part of their story that they don't revisit is the law itself? Which leaves no surprise as to why they broke it. Who has the right to decide how God is to be worshipped? Is it you, based upon your likes and dislikes, based upon your own preferences, interests, feelings, and your own schedule? Exodus 32 emphatically says, no, that is not your right. Verse 18, 
The heart of this commandment, y'all, is that it is the Lord alone who has the right to decide how he will be worshipped. He knows what his love language is. And he demands that he be loved in the way that he says he be loved. Though the Lord repeatedly made clear that he would be worshipped on his terms, this whole scene represents a Yahweh on my terms kind of approach. The Israelites suppose that they can establish a different point of contact with Yahweh. And this leads them to disregard the law, but also to circumvent God's appointed mediator. In other words, the mediator becomes relativized when they choose to do worship the way they want to do it. The teaching of the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 9 and answer, is very instructive and clear here. This is one of our confessional documents as a church. And this is what it says. Question, what sins are forbidden in the second commandment? Answer, the sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. Pretty clear cut. I think this text offers a challenging word to us today. Because though we're not carving calves of gold in our spare time, we sure have our own ways of breaking the second commandment. Here are some that come to mind. The approach to life that is known as spiritual, but not religious. This popular phrase is used to describe a spirituality that doesn't really regard uh, institutional or organized religion as really essential to a person's spiritual vitality. Historically, the words spiritual and religious were synonyms. But in this mode of thinking, spiritual is the language that is used to speak of the inner life of the individual, while religion refers to organizational or communal dimensions of faith that are disregarded. And I've heard representatives of this line of thinking Say things like this, I don't usually go to church because I worship God on nature walks, hikes, or with a good brunch instead. You know what that is? That's breaking the second commandment. It's the same self-willed, self-directed, unauthorized worship for which the Lord judged Israel. You could think of deconstruction. And there are two kinds of deconstruction as far as I see it. I think there is a healthy form of deconstruction that involves recovering historic Christian truths that have been obscured by modern idolatries and immaturities and dysfunctions or monocultural mindsets. Healthy deconstruction ultimately leads to a reconstruction of orthodoxy. Then there is dysfunctional deconstruction. In dysfunctional deconstruction, people get rid of the parts of Christianity that don't jive with the reigning cultural sentiment. And they choose to approach God according to their own preferences and sensibilities, ultimately becoming fierce critics who undermine orthodoxy. 
they never quite get around to reconstructing an orthodox faith at all. It results in the self-willed, self-directed, unauthorized worship that is forbidden in the second commandment. You could speak of disordered priorities. In his leadership materials, Stephen Covey likens a person's life to a container that is limited. And various priorities are represented by different rocks. Very serious priorities are big rocks. And not so serious priorities are little rocks. And he said most people make the mistake of filling up the container of their life with the little rocks. And ultimately, there's no room for the big rocks, the big priorities. He suggests that you first put the big rocks, the big priorities into your life. And if you put the big rocks in first, you can really fill up your life in a healthy way because the little rocks will fit around the big rocks. Now, if you start to think about our lives in this way, you will realize that for many people, a worldly vision of the good life has led them to fill their lives with little rocks, so much so that there's no room for the big rocks. There's no room. When our priorities are disordered, we tend to regulate worship by personal convenience rather than scripture. And that's a serious danger in our age, in our cultural moment. It results in the self-willed, self-directed, unauthorized worship that is forbidden in the second commandment. Next, I would say therapeutic spirituality. Therapeutic spirituality primarily indexes our spirituality to internal feelings rather than external revelation. God is slowly replaced with little more than a personalized, manipulable sense of well-being. Feeling good becomes the deepest value, the primary ethic. And if it doesn't make me feel good, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to resist it. If God's commands don't feel good or seem stern, I just yeah but my way into conflict with the direct teachings of Scripture until I get a softer, more comfortable version of Christianity that has no teeth. Now let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about here. I have been in the company of people, and they have been challenged by a brother or sister in Christ, something to this effect. The brother or sister in Christ will come to them and say, hey, Scripture says that you shouldn't use your words like that. We have a clear speech ethic. And the response that comes back, yeah, but you can't tone police me while I'm expressing my feelings. Just to be clear, the Bible tone polices. It does. I know it's sad, but the Bible tone polices. It has a speech ethic. Or let me give you another example. Like when you correct a brother or sister in Christ for some obvious sin, and they respond by saying, that's just judgmental and legalistic. We're under grace. That is an abusive understanding of grace. It, the same grace that saves us comes in and tells us to come out from that evil. It tells us to submit our hearts, to walk in humility, 
to honor the Lord in all we do, to watch our lives and our doctrine. You know, the Bible says that the scriptures are profitable for rebuke, correction. It is profitable for these things. And if you don't have a category for that because of a therapeutic spirituality, you will be missing out on significant portions of scripture and you will ultimately wind up with a version of spirituality that does not align with the scriptural version of spiritual life and vitality. Therapeutic spirituality is choosing good feelings over the good word of our good God. It results in the self-willed, self-directed, unauthorized worship that is forbidden in the second commandment. So when you understand that what's at the heart of the second commandment is how we worship, worshiping according to the Lord's command, not just willy-nilly however we feel like worshiping, or however it suits us, or whatever aligns with our creative situation, or our mental health situation. These are all ways that I've heard people legitimize breaking the second commandment. Once you understand that the second commandment is all about regulating how we worship, it begins to expose our sin. But the Lord is committed and determined to take command of our hearts, which leads us to our final point, the command of the heart. So in walking through Exodus 32, we have pulled out a detailed theological framework that is not the usual way that you hear this passage preached. And yes, rebellion is a part of of this, this passage. And yes, that is something that the Lord addresses. But so much of this text is God's rebuke through the author of our self-willed worship, breaking the second commandment by taking the mode of worship into our own hands. But true worship emerges when God has command of your heart. His will overriding your will. His ways correcting your ways. His knowledge enlightening your ignorance. His commands forbidding your self-sabotage. His timing replacing your impatience or sluggishness. His rhythms and boundaries constraining your life-stealing pace. His wisdom overcoming your foolishness. The Lord has command of your heart. When you trust the Lord's clear teaching in Scripture more than any alternative. That's when the Lord has command of your heart. When you trust His clear teachings more than you trust any alternatives, no matter how they may be legitimized. But what makes our hearts pliable in the Lord's hands? What makes our hearts malleable? What makes us into clay in the potter's hands? How does the Lord take command of the hearts of those who carve images through self-willed, self-directed, and unauthorized worship? How does he bring us back to the right worship for which we were made? He spoke our love language fluently. On this side of the gospel, 
We get to see the love and mercy that Jesus showed. God's love language spoken to us in a son. The writer of Hebrews said that in these last days, God has spoken to us in a son whom he has declared heir of everything. And Jesus is the spoken love language of God over our lives. He has served us, right? Because he relates to us. The son of God shows us love through acts of service. Because when he walked this earth, he entered in. He said the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of God came to give gifts. He speaks that love language. He himself was the gift from the father. But now he gives us his gift and giving us his spirit and all the spiritual blessings that we could ever hope for. Ephesians 1, his divine, first Peter, second Peter, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us according to his own glory and goodness. We have physical touch because our God came in the flesh and he touched the untouchable and he loved the unlovable and he welcomed the undesirable and he saved those who were otherwise unsavable. We got quality time because he is the God who never leaves us nor forsakes us. He is always present with us, pouring his love out, whispering his affection in our ear through his word. He shows his love to us through quality time. And finally, he speaks his words of affirmation over us. In fact, he doesn't just speak it. The Old Testament prophets tell us that he sings over us. In his love. That's how he delights in you. What can get your rebel heart to come back and worship the Lord according to his love language? It's to see the love language that God has spoken over us for our redemption. That's what makes hard hearts soft. That's what makes stiff necks loose again so that we can turn as he directs. It is the gospel that changes us. Do you see Jesus is the image of God in whom the Spirit dwells. We don't need golden calves. He is the one in whom the Spirit of God dwells. He is our new point of contact with the Lord. He rendered perfectly obedient worship to the Father in our place and on our behalf. He was spiritual and religious living his life before the Father in community and for the benefit of his people. He didn't die as an isolated individual. He died as a federal head, a representative of his people, so that when he died, we went down with him. And when he rose, we were raised up with him. And now we're seated at the right hand in the heavenly places in union with Christ. What dignity, what love. What value, what more could it take to convince you that God is for you, that God loves you, that God is behind you, that God is beside you, that God is ahead of you, that God is undergirding you underneath, that your God is faithful? What else could soften your heart like that but the good news? It's in a good news that he deconstructed the curse and the ruin of sin so that he could reconstruct us in love and in faithfulness, in obedient worship. 
He refused to regulate his worship by convenience. And we should be glad because Jesus prioritized the big rock of worship and glory to the Father. He was able to bring little rocks called Christians into the life of the triune God where his love is strongest. That is good news. And we ought to praise the Lord for indexing his spirituality to the will of the Father rather than his emotions. Even when it didn't feel good. He rendered obedient worship when rejected and attacked. He rendered obedient worship in Gethsemane when the Father wouldn't grant what felt good. He rendered obedient worship even when it led him to a cross. He chose the good word of our good God over good feelings to give us the good life. So out of these gospel resources, my application is to reevaluate worship. Reevaluate worship. And I want to invite you to start that reevaluation of worship by returning to our membership expectations. If you are a member of Grace Mosaic, you have heard the expectations that we have for our members. And let me revisit those with you. These are the expectations that we would come to worship consistently. And if you're traveling for work, the Lord be with you, but worship somewhere else when you're away. It's important that you worship and show up in the corporate worship of the Lord's people. Worship consistently. Come consistently. Come early. We said in our, in our membership seminar that one of the most important things that we can do for our mission is to show up early, ready to worship the Lord, to prepare our hearts, ready to welcome people. We want to engage in worship that ultimately becomes witness. Because people might catch a glimpse of us in our worship and be like, who are they looking at? Who are they? He must be something. And we believe that he is. Let our worship show that. Come early so that you can engage the children of our church. It's important. And this is a discipline for me. As a pastor, but I want it to become a discipline for us as a community. Every Sunday to, to kneel down, to look a child in the eyes and to ask them, are you ready to worship the Lord today? Do you have anything to worship the Lord for today? Did, did he answer any of your prayers? Has he given you loving parents and, a, and food to eat and friends? That sounds like something we can worship him for, right? All right. I'm going to be looking for you to join in worship, something that simple. Just think about how it blesses our kids, not only by giving them attention and showing them that they are valuable to the Lord and to his community, but you're also reminding them and yourselves what we show up here for in the first place is to worship. Take worship seriously by praying for our Sunday morning worship. I would venture to say that there are no people in this neighborhood who need prayer more than the staff and leadership of this church. We, just, we need your prayer. We need grace. I, I kind of want to say, if you ever get your, you know, if there's any times where what you hear up here kind of gets beneath the surface for you or like digs in on you or frustrates you, and you're not praying for me, you have power to make things different. 
you have power to make me a better preacher. But seriously, to pray that the word would go out, that the Lord would bring our neighbors here, that there would be a spirit of hospitality in this place so that we don't, we don't find it to be comfortable to show up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday without trying to bring our neighbors and coworkers here, without praying that this church would become a witness of the breadth and the height and the width and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what we want for this church. Pray for our Sunday mornings. Also, prepare your heart. Fellowship is sweet, and I love that there's always exciting chatter in this community. It's wonderful. But also, I think it's appropriate that we prepare our hearts for worship. Maybe a minute or two, maybe five minutes before that you come and find your seat and you begin to prepare your heart and remind yourself what we're doing here, looking at the worship guide, preparing your heart so that when you worship, it is full-hearted, full-hearted worship. The love language of the Lord is obedient worship. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Our God is worthy. So let us worship him in such a way that our worship in its faithfulness to his commands, in its joy, in its celebration, in its seriousness, in its fun, in its vitality, would confirm the fact that Jesus lives and that the Christian story is true. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.